Welcome. I'm your host, Jeff Johnston, to the Living Undeterred podcast. And today I have a very special guest. Uh, pretty good chance we're going to navigate from the normal narrative, at least initially today. And I'm honored to have, uh, this is the second time I've actually met uh, Dr. Daniel Crosby. And he is a uh, key part of my book I wrote uh, two years ago. I actually uh, had an interview with him. Um, you're probably wondering, you know, what, what would be the angle I'd be interviewing him, but we're going to talk about that today. So, Dr. Crosby, I'm honored. Uh, do you go by Daniel, Dr. Crosby, you know, Mr. Crosby? I don't know how you like to be called, but I'll just call you Daniel if that's okay. But Daniel's great. Daniel's it. Uh, thanks for being on the show. And I'm uh, I am a big fan of yours. Um, uh, before I met you, I was all Nick Murray. Everything was Nick Murray in my business. And for people that are in on my side of the fence in, in the wealth management world, Nick Murray's a household name when it came mm -hmm. to behavior finance. And You've kind of, in, in, I guess, in the new generation, you've kind of supplanted uh, Nick in, in my eyes and that you're the go-to guy. You're the guy that is referred to when it comes to people's relationships with their with money, uh, good and bad, and um, the, the behavioral economics behind the decisions and choices we make with our money. So with that, honored to have you here today and maybe tell my listeners and followers a little bit about you and... and uh, you know, about what you do um, for, um, I think it's with uh, Orion Advisors, right? That's who you're with. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, so Daniel Crosby, I'm the chief behavioral officer at Orion Advisor Solutions. I'm a big Nick Murray fan. So it's, it's an honor to be mentioned in the same breath as Nick Murray. Um, but I'm a psychologist by education. Uh, my PhD is in clinical psychology, uh, but I've spent my career applying uh, sort of my study of how humans behave uh, to the particulars of money and financial markets. So I talk about, you know, I call it money, mind and meaning. You know, how does money intersect with things like personal wellness and stress and how can we make good decisions in markets? How can we overcome overcome bias? Like the, all these sorts of things are, are sort of my um, uh, within my purview. So that's, that's what I do. It's been a fun, been a fun career and, uh, it's an, it's an honor to be back with you. So back at BYU, where you went to school and you got into psychology, uh, did you immediately have this, this money psychology, uh, angle in mind, or did you kind of fall into that world? No, I, I very much fell into it. So I actually, uh, I actually went uh, into psychology with a very particular emphasis around eating disorders. So uh -huh. I had um, a, a, a loved one was was struggling with an eating disorder, and I was very immersed in trying to help her recover. <clears throat> and she was in inpatient treatment out in Utah where I was going to school. And so I did a lot of the legwork of, of sort of being the the go between between her family and the doctors and and it was there that I got exposed to clinical psychology and uh, in in general and and eating disorder treatment in specific uh, and so I really entered with an eye to very very specifically uh, you know doing work with eating disorders uh, but then uh, once I was within my doctoral program. Uh, explored and, and fell in love with the whole range of human uh, emotions and, and sort of irrationalities and, and behaviors. And so took a more generalist path. And then about, about, uh, about three years into my program, I just started to burn out. I mean, as, as mm -hmm. part of the completion <clears throat> of that program, 
you got to do, you know, thousands of hours uh, a year of face-to-face client interactions. And there was a lot I liked about it. And I I thought it was important work, but I was also really taking it home with me. And so I, I started to shift my focus and I went to my dad, who's a financial advisor. And I said, look, dad, I, I love psychology, right? Like this is what I need to be studying, but I don't need to be studying it in sort of a clinical or a medical context. I want to study mm-hmm. it in, uh, in sort of a business context. And he said, well, you know, look, there's, there's a lot of psychology in the work that I do, which at the whatever I would have been then 24 yeah. years old or whatever, you know, didn't didn't make any sense to me because I'd always thought of him as sort of a numbers guy, but long story short, that's how he discovered the field of behavioral economics and sort of tilted my career in that direction. It's interesting because I, I love psychology as well. And in, in the projects I'm working on today uh, in regards to people making better choices with drugs, mm-hmm. alcohol, and substance abuse, in other words, just trying to improve you know, mental health in our country. I go back to my college days and I had a, I had a major in finance and I had enough credits. I, I, I can technically say I didn't have a minor in psychology. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure why I didn't I didn't do that, but I know I was really close to getting a minor. But as I got into the investment business in my 20s, I noticed that I really liked the behavioral aspect. And there wasn't even an industry called behavioral mm-hmm. finance. I mean, right. I'm not sure behavioral economics was even um, that uh, I know Kahneman, Daniel Kahneman and people like that, that I think that was in what the fifties and sixties. Am, am I on the right, right person? So think, there, I think, but I think no, it was somebody it's, else. It's a little later than that. It's a little later than that, but you know, it, he didn't win his Nobel prize until gotcha. like 2013. Okay. And so even though, you know, even though they had been working on these things for however long, 40 years, um, it's not like it was made widely. It's not like people were, were broadly aware of it outside of the academic journals. Yeah. And that's, that's what got me really interested was that no one was really talking about it. So we would sit with clients and we'd meet with them and we'd do the traditional fact finding questions, you know, the risk, the risk assessments, those type of things. But I've always, I was always just kind of curious in peeling back and keep going back and keep going back. And I had situations uh, I had one situation I'll share with you that should sound like it happens, you know, when you meet with people every day is I had a lady I met with one time and she uh, was telling me initially how much money she had, you know, and she was very you know, confident in her net worth. And I sensed immediately that, first of all, I didn't want to work with her. I mean, that's one advantage we have in this business. We don't have to work with everybody. Mm-hmm. I realized that, but I had to be professional, you know, I couldn't just fire her. So, I just pivoted to how many kids, how many grandkids you have. And she was kind of set back and she goes, well, I have three. And I said, oh, that's cool. And I said, when's the last time, you know, where do they live? And she said, like on the West coast. And I go, when's the last time you saw them? And you know what she said, Daniel, hmm. have you seen the price of airline tickets? Hmm. And this is coming out of just telling me how much money she had for, you know, 10 minutes. And I looked at her and I said, I, I didn't ask you what the price of airline tickets I ask you, when's the last time you see your grandkids? And that really hit home with me that that was kind of a, a, uh, a road that I went down that I really realized that there's a disconnect out there with people, with what they think is the successful, um, you know, uh, aspect of saving money is, you know, the quantifiable part. How many chips mm-hmm. do I have? And I realized this was like in my, you know, in my probably my 30s. And I realized right there, I really wanted to spend a lot of time 
And I ended up never working with her. And I used that story at seminars for a long, long time about people's disconnect. And I think the, I think there is a, a disconnect in the industry. Although I will tell you though, uh, Daniel, it's gotten a lot better. Mm-hmm. The, commercial, the commercials with all the big players now are a lot more on, you know, kind of like this, this saying that we've always said for years, you've saved for retirement now, enjoy it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like that enjoyment part now. It's like, yeah. I think, I think, and, and maybe you can comment on this, but do you think over the years of our industry, we did a great job of getting people to accumulate wealth, but we did a horrible job of getting them to enjoy their money. Well, that yeah, that's certainly the case. And I'll take a semi-cynical approach. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think if you think back over the sort of the different eras of financial services, there's there was an era in which you needed a stockbroker to even transact business, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you just like you you couldn't do it by yourself. You needed an intermediary. Well, we get platforms, you know, whatever, 30 years ago, we get platforms like E-Trade and others that make it very easy for you to do it yourself. I mean, you might blow yourself up, but you can you can make the, you can make the trade. Right. So that was no longer uh, sort of the Wall Street value proposition. So the next value proposition um, became, well, yeah, you can trade yourself but you don't know what you're doing. So sort of like, let us pick the stocks for you yeah. and we'll help you outperform. Well, we know there's a couple of problems with that. You know, the first thing is that 85% of active managers underperform right. just indexing over long periods of time. And then the other thing is the behavioral piece. You know, you look at, I, I can't talk about individual securities, but you look at a popular uh one of the most popular funds of the last year or two Mm -hmm. it's had extraordinary success and the average investor in that fund has lost money because they've come in and out of it at at all the wrong times. And so there's a behavioral problem there. So he said, well, we, we got disintermediated by technology. There's not sort of a winning bet to be made on, on active management writ large. There are certainly individual active managers who do well, but not, not as a group, we're going to win there. So they've sort of focused on on the goals based piece, the human side, and and the good news is that's actually where it should have been the whole time, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, wh- whether we whether we arrived there cynically because other sort of uh, you know uh, other sort of business lines got eroded, or whether we got there uh, more organically because that's what we believe is the truth. Either way, it's a good place to be. Do you think it's less the emotional side of the investors and more of the information side of the investment industry? And what I mean by that is there's too much information. It's like it's like I think the average investor was better served when they didn't have the Internet to look at their investments. You know, what's your thoughts on that? No, that's that's certainly the case. So a lot of the things that we ask for. Or, or would want as investors, right? So we want things like liquidity, like easy sort of, you know, the, the ability to easily get, get in and out of a position. We want transparency. We want to be able to look on our iPhone 400 times a day, mm-hmm. you know, and see what the stock market's doing. Uh, we want ease of access. All of these things, while they sound good on paper, are the enemy of good financial decision-making. I mean, if you really wanted to design an optimal uh, sort of financial instrument, it would be, you know, it would look something like a, a, an equity fund that had a 30 year lockup. <laughs> yeah. You know, every, yeah, every, yeah. every time you bought a stock, you couldn't sell it for 30 years. And you know, what's interesting, Jeff, is 
it, you think about your house, you know, for, for a while there until Zillow and Trulia and some of these others, I mean, you maybe had a rough idea what your house was worth, yeah. but you didn't really sort of monitor your home's value tick by tick. Right. And so people have always thought that real estate was this great investment when typically it's been very poor relative to, to stocks. Right. But the reason was it's because, you know, grandma bought her house for whatever, $50,000, yep. never looked at the price, never thought what it would be worth because grandma was just living there. Right. And right. then, you know, 25, 30 years later, grandma sells it for half a million bucks or whatever. And you go, oh, wow. Like, you know, grandma hit a, a 10 X her money. Well, now we can even look at our home value, you know, every day. I get, you know, I get a report from from Zillow every month telling me what my home's worth and do I want to sell it. And I mean, I kind of do lately, but <laughs> yeah, I know, especially yeah. where you where you live, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I think that that is so true. I remember one time on the radio, we we host a radio show here in Cedar Rapids called the Premier Investments of Iowa Financial Hour. We're actually the longest standing show in Cedar Rapids. Uh, we're on year 15, I think now. And we had a little fun few years back when this was obviously becoming a problem. We said, yeah, we, we were just joking. We said, yeah, we have a brand new product coming out. It's an hourly valuation of your home property on an app. And we said it tongue in cheek, you know, to start the show. And then we, then we just kind of left it alone. You wouldn't believe the people that were interacting with us. They thought this was mm -hmm. a great idea. And stuff. Yeah. Like, no, this is a horrible idea. This yeah. is a horrendous idea. I mean, in the 60s, the average person looked at their investment statement when it showed up in their quarterly statement in the mail. And you wonder why in the 60s, average rate of returns for average investors were better than they are today. Well, you know, I'm a I'm a baseball card collector. And one of the things that I love about card collecting, there are sites. I mean, there are sites you can go to and monitor your card's value tick by tick. But one of the things that I like about it is that I just, I buy stuff because I enjoy it. Like, right, mm -hmm. I buy a card because I enjoy it. I stash it in my safe. And then I, you know, I bring it out occasionally to look at it with my yeah. son. But I'm like, I'm, I, I'm never going to sell it. Like, right. I mean, I have no, I, I'm not in this to flip it. I'm not in to get in and out. So I think they'll ultimately probably be pretty good investments because I'm not treating them like investments that I need tomorrow. And if we could all do that with stocks, kind of buy them, put them in our safe and we'd be a lot better off. My grandma, when I was 23, um, she sat me down when I came into the business. She says, I have the best advice to ever give you that you can give your clients to make money in the stock market. I said, what's that grandma? She said, buy anything that you can and hold it forever. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was it. That, and you know what? Now, 32 years later, mm -hmm. good advice. <laughs> had I done that, you know, and, and not, and not try to overextend myself on certain asset classes, you know, and, and not diversify well and things like that. It's like, you know, that, that sage wisdom is so true. And that's what Warren Buffett, I think, kind of preaches under on his undertones when you peel back everything. It's, it's pretty clear. You just you diversify, you sit tight, you, you, you ride out the storm. So speaking of storms, we're kind of in one right now. Um, what the heck, what the heck is going on? I mean, I, I'm not fully practice uh, practicing advisor anymore. I, I do everything now is geared towards my living undeterred project yet. I still have my licenses and I'm still the, the OSJ at the office. Um, but, um, What's going on right now? I mean, I'm, I'm getting people saying, you know, is this another 08? Is this another 2001? You know, what, what, what in your, in your, um, 
what do you think is going on right now? What do you, what do you tell people? Yeah. So what's funny is, you know, we had a day like yesterday, right? Um, so yeah, we're, ha- we're talking on what day is it? January 25th, um, yesterday, yeah. the 24th. So the NASDAQ was down as much as 4.9% and then closed up, I think about 0.64% or something like that. So like a, just an enormous swing. And there were individual stocks that round tripped 20, 25% in a day. I mean, they mm-hmm. went from being, you know, down 17% to up 8% and things like that. And so what's fascinating, though, is if you go to one of the big, you know, financial sites and you look in the morning, you say, you know, the the headlines will say, you know, whatever market crashes as investors weigh inflation and Ukraine, Russia risk and, you know, things like that. So there's this sort of um, there's this ostensible cause that's that's sort of paired with it. And then you look at the end of the day and it says, you know. Uh, markets close green as investors are enthusiastic about, you know, the end of COVID or something like that. And so what what you see, you know, what you see is really sort of a mirror of what happens with with humankind. Yeah. Humankind, we are emotional machines who post hoc think about and label things. Right. So if I. um you know, uh, all, very often we will just act. And then after the fact, mm-hmm. we will try and make sense of that and sort of ascribe some meaning to that action. But that action more often than not is driven by things that are emotional or subconscious or sort of beneath our awareness. So a lot of what goes on in the market is uh, either A, pure randomness or B, mimetic. Like it's People are doing stuff because other people are doing stuff. Right. You know, it's it's shouting fire in a theater kind of, you yeah. know, kind of stuff. And it happens in both directions. And then sort of post hoc, we try and justify or rationalize what happened. Um, so, so far, I'm going to mess up the specific numbers. But so far, as of today, I, who knows what it's doing today? I think it was down about 2% when we started. I think we're down about 12 for 13% on the S&P for the year as of as of today, depending on the moment of the day we're talking about. Um, over the last 35 years, the average drawdown in the S&P has been about 15%. Yeah, yeah. And then the average year has been, you know, up 10%. Right. So, so far... Like nothing unusual has happened. Now, I think people are scared. Like I think right. people are scared because of the specter of COVID and, and what's going on in, in Russia and a and hundred other things. But so far, like nothing unusual has happened. It's, it's really, you know, I, I talk about in one of my books that, that corrections like this come as average uh, on average as, as often as your birthday, right? Like this is going to yeah. happen. If you're a long-term investor, you're going to see markets like this uh, effectively year in and year out. And, and yet every time they happen, we act shocked and act like we've never seen this movie before. So, so far, I mean, kind of business as usual, especially after uh, the sort of killer year that we had last year. But remember, though, this time it's different. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I just, I get a kick out of that phrase, especially the younger, the younger investors or they haven't been around, you know, I'm, I'm 55. So you're, you're 
quite a bit younger than me, but you know, I, I was in the trenches in 01 when the, mm-hmm. when the planes hit the buildings and we didn't know. It wasn't yeah. just what's the market going to do tomorrow. Is, is there going to be a market tomorrow? I mean, right. you know, and I can relate to what, you know, our parents and grandparents kind of, you know, metaphorically went through with, with wondering if, if, you know, we were going to get bombed, things like that. It's like you have that fear, like this is bigger than investing. I mean, yeah. this is, this is, you know, this is our country. And it's like, and then 08 happened and it was, you know, it wasn't, um, you know, it, from, from a, um, psychological perspective, the same type, but again, it was the exuberance. It was the, you know, the greed is good. Everything run up to just this ridiculous levels. I mean, your guy, the guy building your house is talking about his stocks, you know, when he's up there, mm-hmm. the construction guys, and you always know that's kind of the top of the market when that happens. Hey, okay. So I came across something you wrote about, um, the irrationality index. Um, mm-hmm. and I didn't dive, I didn't dive too much into it because I wanted to save, save it for you to explain to me what that is. Um, what is it? And is it, is it has anything to do with, I guess, comparing it to like something like the VIX index that, that we use a lot in our industry? Yeah. So I will, I will tell you what it is with the caveat that I haven't updated it in forever. So the, um, okay. the, um, what I did was I took a lot of the uh, measures like the VIX, right? Things like, um, inflows and outflows put call ratios are getting kind of technical here yeah yeah but, but uh i took a lot of the things that are are purported uh to be measures of sentiment in the market and i looked at uh effectively i looked at history and regressed them against performance and tried to figure out which ones worked and which ones didn't hmm. and then i tried to create a composite score um based based on those that worked so it, it won't surprise you that most of them didn't work at all. I think yeah. about, you know, I think of only about 15% of the, the, the metrics that people commonly point to um, matter much at all, but things like the VIX are uh, worth looking at things like uh, things like valuations are worth looking at um, things like the yield curve are worth looking at and sort of put, put those together into one score um, so yeah, that's, that's what that was. And then I just, uh, I need to update it. I have not updated it in forever. And I, my apologies there. I couldn't tell you what the, what the current level of irrationality is. Well, it tells you how much I researched it when I found it on your, <laughs> on your profile. I just, I, uh, yeah, I thought it was interesting because I, I have used the VIX and, you know, even just looking at the VIX recently, it's like right around, I think 30 roughly, mm-hmm. um, you would know better than I, but I think in uh, a few years back, I mean, it was as high as the mid sixties. Right. What it is, is it's the fear gauge. We call it, it monitors, you know, what the sentiment is in the, from an investor, investor perspective. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to throw another softball at you here. Um, Cryptocurrency. How much should, I know you can't answer this, but how much, uh, how much should the average, uh, and I live in Iowa, man. I mean, our, our, our client base is just, you know, salt of the earth, Johnny lunch bucket, pretty laid back. We don't have a lot of day trader. I mean, pretty normal reflection of what you'd expect in a flyover state. Um, how much cryptocurrency should the average investor have? What do you think? What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm definitely not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> Maybe that was a fastball, not a softball. No, that was a fastball for my compliance department. So the Mine too, uh, mine too. <laughs> the, the, thing that, the thing that I would say about crypto is it's obviously extremely volatile. Uh, it's been volatile to the upside and it's been volatile to the downside. I mean, its rise has been meteoric. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, and its recent correction has been... <clears throat> 
You yeah. Know? And it's, it's crashes have been frequent and seismic. You know right. I mean? It'll drop. It's, I mean, if you think stocks are scary, I mean, cryptocurrency, the potential for it to, to make you, you know, very wealthy or very poor historically has been pretty dramatic. Yeah. So the thing that I would encourage people to do is, is to understand the use case. I think what, what frustrates me is speculation in crypto that's divorced from an understanding of, of what it is and what it ought to do and its use cases. Right. So my, my highly diplomatic answer is go check it out, see what it purports to be, uh, see if you believe it. And then if you do to take a, uh, you know, a sort of a measured allocation to it with the help of an advisor. So um, Patrick O'Shaughnessy, I'm going to forget the name of the, the name of his podcast is invest like the best. Mm-hmm. He had a three part crypto series years ago, but I still think was the best sort of explainer that I've come across when I was trying to learn about crypto. So if you're, you're interested in diving in, I think Patrick O'Shaughnessy's three-part cryptocurrency sort of explainer series that was, I think, in like, I don't know, 2017 or something. Um, what It was very good. Now, you're the host of the very successful Standard Deviations podcast. Mm-hmm. And last night I was uh, parousing around. I've been on there a number of times. And one name in particular really jumped out of me. Uh, probably my Mount Rushmore of financial professionals. And that's Rick Edelman. Hmm. Um, I met him once in Chicago uh, years ago, and I've just been absolutely amazed on on the way he presents his narrative, you know, the way he presents his ideas and his I've read every book as as I've read um, <laughs> as I've read every one of your books. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah. I, I again, I I, uh, I I very admire what you do and very um, fortunate to have been able to kind of, you know, get into your, your workings. But anyway, back to Rick. But he talked in your interview, which I listened to it again for the second time. I thought it was an awesome interview about blockchain, the technology behind it as being like up there with the wheel and fire. Mm-hmm. Um, would you would you mind taking that uh, taking that softball now? I'll throw it out to you. And maybe for the average person out there, you know, which is probably the majority of people listening to this right now, couldn't tell their next door neighbor what blockchain technology is. Mm-hmm. So maybe just on a very um, surface level, what is blockchain? Why do you think and why does why do you think Rick thinks that it, it's basically, you know, changing the playing field, especially when he's talking about the, the poor and the, the under uh, under underserved uh, investors in our industry that have less than 100,000 and less than 500,000 that you hear with these account minimums that so many advisors have. You know, Rick was very adamant about not being a big fan of that. So back to blockchain. Thoughts, perspectives, what do you think? Yeah, so I'll try and um, I would encourage everyone to go listen to the episode. I'll do my best to sort of characterize Rick's position. Um, That was at the Orion Ascent Conference. And so he gave a presentation where I believe it was the wheel, fire, the internet and blockchain. Yeah, sort of like the four biggest commercial innovations of, of, of all time. I mean, that's like, pretty, pretty heady company, right? Like if you're up there with five. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so uh, I think his case and like specifically his case from uh, an equality sort of egalitarian access to financial services uh, thing is that it, it disintermediates the big boys. Like it takes out, um, 
it takes out the banks and other people and makes it permissionless so that I can transact with, with Jeff without the blessing of the U.S. government or some big intermediary bank or something or like that. Or even a bank account. Yeah, you don't need a bank sure. account. Yeah, you don't need a bank account. So that's I think that's sort of his case. And I mean, if you look back at the, the history of how financial services have been uh, used against women and people of color, I mean, it was... It's been uh, 50-ish years. Uh, as recently as about 50-ish years ago, I think a woman couldn't get a credit card without her husband's approval. You know, wow. I mean, that's shocking. It and is. If, you, if you look at the way that banks and, and mortgage lenders use redlining and, and racist practices against Black families who were trying to secure a house, I mean, there's there's certainly a case to be made that taking out sort of a greedy, unethical middle person uh, could have benefits for groups that have been historically underserved by, by traditional financial institutions. I believe that the potential is there. Now, you must counterbalance that argument with the reality of something like Bitcoin today, which is Bitcoin looks a lot like regular money or regular wealth in that the vast preponderance of Bitcoin is held by a relatively small yeah. number of wallets. So uh, even though I think it has the, the potential um, to do this sort of revolutionary good for humankind, right now, the distribution of wealth in Bitcoin is looking a lot like the distribution of wealth uh, broadly, which is to say uh, wildly uneven. Yeah, I... We used to get a call back in the day on the radio show about gold, you know, mm -hmm. same type of thing. You know, what, what's your thoughts on gold? And I always said it's pretty much the same answer. It's not my thoughts on gold. It's not what I think about gold. It's how much of it represents your overall investment network. Mm -hmm. I mean, isn't that really kind of at the end of the day, anything that you buy, you know, if it's 30 percent, 40 percent of your investment net worth, you know, I don't care if it's the quote best fund or best stock or best whatever asset class. That still is maybe a little bit too big a bet. So I guess my perspective has been, and I kind of now use this with the cryptocurrency. We don't have a lot, a lot of it in our firm um, usage from clients. If it is, it's not being done obviously through us. Um, I kind of have the same thought. You know, it's, I don't think it's the fact that whether I like Bitcoin or I like you know uh, these other um, Bitcoin, these other cryptocurrencies. It's more I'm concerned with the amount that you own of it of your investment net worth. You know. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, as I've studied great investors, there's one truism uh, among all of them, and it's that they win by not losing. Absolutely, right? yep. Is that they win by not losing. And so I think you have to take a risk-first approach to whatever asset class. I'm not picking on, I'm not picking on anybody. I just think whatever asset class you're looking at, you diversify because you win by not losing. It. It is uh, diversification is two things at once, right? Diversification is sort of lived humility, right? It says, look, I don't know what the future holds. Like, I don't know what's going to do well. And I don't know what's going to do poorly because otherwise you'd stack all your chips on the one asset class that was going to do well, but that's right. not how markets work. Right. But it's a guarantee of frustration in some respects because some of the stuff that you own will always be kind of crummy on any yeah. given year. It has but, to, right? Yeah. yeah. 
it, you know, my, my friend Brian says that uh, diversification means always having to say you're sorry. Like there will always yeah. be something in that portfolio that you wish were different. But, you know, moments like today when, you know, the markets are in turmoil, you're, you're happy for your cash or your bonds or, you know, your treasuries or whatever. Um, moments like last year when the market was up like a rocket ship, you're happy for your stocks and, and your risk assets. So you, you have to find the mix of those things that helps you sleep well at night, which is, which is really the most important thing. Yeah, I think what people lose sight of, uh, Daniel, is by definition, non-correlating assets. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you, are, you are admitting defeat, at least temporarily, on yeah. some of those assets. If you, I used to draw a, a, um, a circle on the whiteboard and I would put a hypothetical portfolio, uh, 10 investments, 10% mm -hmm. each. And I put, eight air, I put uh, seven arrows going up, one arrow sideways, and two down. Mm -hmm. And okay. And I said, you're the financial advisor now. I, I flipped the role to the people in the audience. And I said, I'm going to come into your office. Where do you think I want to spend most of my time? On the two that are down. Yeah. So you've got, you've got eight out of 10 that are either even or up. Yeah. And your overall portfolio is up, but you want to spend the whole time on the two that are down. You told me when I hired you, you want to diversify and you understand non-correlation. But then right. you come in. And so this is one of the reasons that I think this this um, what you do is so important to get the word out to people like me. So I then can go to the consumer, uh, yeah. to, the, to our customers and, and talk about, you know, diversification and non-correlation by definition mean you need to be pretty much at all times aware you're going to have investments that are trailing, not just the averages, but trailing maybe what you put in. Yeah. Yeah, a hundred percent of the time. Expected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I wanted to. One thing I, I I wanted to ask your thoughts on this. I know I know Rick has a different perspective, and I I've boy in my years I've been to workshops where the top financial advisors in the country, you know, huge players that move the needle, say you got to have an account minimum. You know, got to mm -hmm. have an account minimum. And then you people, someone like Eidelman, that you know maybe has a different perspective. You know. Um, What's your thoughts? I mean, if you were to design a financial advisory practice and you were going to be, you know, on this side of the fence, actually, you know, working with individual investors, um, would you design a practice where you thought account minimums would be where you'd start? So for, for me, it all goes back to your mission, right? So if, you're, if your mission is to create the most streamlined, profitable financial advisory services, uh, you know, the financial advisor shop possible, you, you definitely need account minimums, right? If your mission is uh, to reach everyone possible and lift them up and ha have sort of a more humanitarian mission, you know, to bring the good of financial plannings into as, as, as many lives as possible, say that's your mission, then no, don't have an account minimum. So I, I, it really all goes back to mission to me. But I mean, I think if you wanted to create uh, a, a money-making machine, then yes, you definitely would want account minimums. Uh, if you're trying to create a meaning-making machine, um, maybe the answer is no. And I think for, for most people, the answer is going to be somewhere in the middle, right? Where right. there's, there's yeah. some level of wealth below which it just doesn't make sense for us to work together. Yeah. Uh, and I can't serve you at the level uh, that I desire to. So that's, to me, there's no right answer there. The, the only right answer is know yourself, know your practice, know your meaning and what you're trying to build, and then set up a reality that, that aligns with that meaning. 
Yeah, we used to present that we didn't have account minimums, but you, I mean, I understand you're saying we we didn't have like a $25 a month client very often. I mean, right. it was, it was a teenager or something, but we always said we had people minimums. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we want to work with good, yeah. well-grounded, realistic people that had, you know, fair expectations that weren't looking at as us as wizards of Wall Street. You know, mm-hmm. most of most of us in this business, Daniel, are more of what you do. And less and less than what they think we do. Yeah. Um, I remember you were talking, I think it was either with Brandon Frazier or Rick again, one of your podcasts. I know Brandon's a, a good friend of yours and, and mm-hmm. he's been on your show a few times talking about the oh, what's the um, how do you guys present this? Where the where the, the studies say that that one thing is the right thing. Maybe it was service, maybe it was I don't remember what it was, but the but the perception from the consumer was completely different right and so do you remember what the was it service or was it i don't remember what it was yeah so the the most explicitly this is from a morningstar study the most explicit they they ask um they ask clients what they value in their advisory in their advisory relationship and then they kind of compare that to what the research says um so the research says, we'll skip to the chase there, like the research says that the number one benefit people get from working with an advisor is effectively decisional aid and emotionment, emotionment, emotional manager, you know, someone who keeps you out of your own way, a behavioral coach, someone to help mitigate the impact of, of extreme emotion. Well, that's the thing that clients value least in wow. their advisor. So it's it's the it's the greatest value added by the advisor. And it's the thing that's perceived as least valuable by the clients. But what's fascinating is that the number one value of, of the clients is my advisor. It's something like my advisor helps me reach my goals, my reach my financial goals or something. Sort of this catch all term. Yeah. pretty and much right. You can't divorce. You can't divorce something like meeting my goals from the reality of behavioral coaching and emotional management, the way that you reach your goals is that advisor helps you understand your risk. They help you understand your goals. They help keep you in your seat during volatile times like this. They help you do a hundred things that reach those goals. So yeah, we've, we've got some work to do as an industry to help clients understand uh, the value added by advisors and, and how best to utilize it. Yeah, it's so interesting when I see those studies coming out. You know, I think John Hancock back in the day had a study, kind of the the opposite of what we just talked about. What they mm-hmm. what, what makes them happy? It was why do clients fire us? Yeah, and you know, I went I went down. I answered the the, the questionnaire like everybody else, thinking you know, it was rate of returns or mm-hmm. our fees are too expensive. You know, it was not returning. Phone communication. Call. <laughs> yeah, yep. it's, communication. Like, it's like you know, Stoics always say, "Focus on what you can control." Yeah, I, isn't that probably more than anything? I can't control the market. I can't control inflation. I can't control the next widget coming out that's going to be like Bitcoin. I can't. I can't control that. But I certainly can control calling back a client or returning an email. You know. Well, it's like the it's like the Malcolm. I don't I don't remember who did the original study. Malcolm Gladwell cited it to great effect, uh, but he cited this research that was done that showed that that the best predictor of whether or not a doctor got sued by their patients was not you know whether they left a Rolex Rolex in their chest cavity. You know, it's not it's not whether or not they did a good job. Right. It's whether they had good bedside manner. 
So yeah. you can be a, a, a terrible doctor, you know, if you're, if you're kind to your patients, you're not going to get sued. Now, ideally you go find an advisor and a doctor who is both kind and competent, but uh, kindness will get you uh, fired. A lack of kindness will get you fired a lot faster uh, than, than, uh, you know, a rough year in the markets. All right. So I got about 20 minutes left with you and I want to segue, if that's okay, um, a little bit into some of the stuff I do and kind of how behavioral finance, um, you know, there's a tether between people's poor uh, decisions and choices they make with uh, substance abuse, mental health addiction, mm -hmm. things like that. If you're okay with uh, that little pivot, um, yeah. because I, I did, I did talk to you uh, in my book um, and I appreciate you taking the time to be interviewed because I was very interested in, I think that if people make poor decisions with their money and there's a poor unhealthy relationship with their money, it's possible that that permeates over to other areas of their lives. It could be gambling, which would be, I guess, a poor decision with their money, but it could be drinking, uh, lying, you know, affairs, things, things that can, it seems to me if somebody's a disconnection in one area of their life, it probably, their other areas probably aren't, aren't dissimilar. They're probably the same thing. Do, do you, do you see people that have unhealthy relationships with money? Um, and maybe you're not privy to a lot of this information, but do you see there's lots of, um, uh, overlap with people that make poor choices when it comes to substance abuse and addiction? Well, yes. In the, the answer though is, is a bit complicated because there's, it, it all kind of hangs together, right? Since money touches every part of our lives, I think when you start to struggle, uh, the money struggle is, is comorbid with those, with those other struggles. So yes, it's certainly the case that many people who struggle with many of the things that you've talked about, have concurrent money problems. Uh, sometimes money is chicken, sometimes it's egg, uh, but I would say that it's always sort of wrapped up uh, concurrent with, with a lot of these struggles you've talked about. So in regards to addiction, I know you you and I talked a lot about this. Um, and, and initially when I started this, I was kind of naively looking at this as disease versus choice. And I, I learned as I went on, it's disease and choice. It's, mm -hmm. nat it's nature and nurture. I think yeah. I spent way too much time trying to argue one side over the other. And I finally realized that it's a combination of many factors to get people to do uh, excessive drinking. But, you know, I, I'm, at, I'm at the point now where I, I would, I would agree. I would say that, you know, addiction is a disease, at least the, there's the predisposition to have an addiction. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it predetermines that you'll be a substance abuser. And I didn't know if you have put much thought into that or what maybe what your thoughts are if I present it to you that way. You know, do I just say, yeah, we are. A lot of us are. You know, I was an alcoholic for a long time. I was a compulsive gambler. I write about that in my book, which being in this business is not a thing to put on your U4. But um <laughs> But I can talk about it now. But um, but I was always interested how how there was a lot of overlap there. And so it's like, you know, <clears throat> do you do you think do you think that people have more ability now that you're this behavioral, uh, you know, psychologist individual that's very big into understanding the why behind we make decisions? Do you think people have more potential to just say, I'm going to quit drinking? I can turn this addiction off. Or do you think we're held prisoner to the seductions of what we are addicted to that, that we, there's no way out and we just have to count the days we're sober and hope we don't fall off the fall off the wagon? 
Yeah. So I think, I think your framing of it as, as, as nature and nurture is, is instructive. So the, the psychological term for, for what you're talking about is it's a, it's biopsychosocial. Mm-hmm. So is there a biological reality to addiction um, in the sense that some people are more biologically predisposed to it than others? And in the sense that something that is uh, addictive has a, a, an impact on your biology and is just chemically addictive. Yes, that's all true, right? Like some people are more predisposed to addiction than other people. Uh, is there a psychological piece to it? You know, do do people use uh, uh, addiction to self-medicate? Are some people more or less prone to addiction based on their predilection to be uh, anxious or depressed or a or hundred other things? Yes, definitely. Is there a social element to it? Mm-hmm. Yes, there definitely is. You know, James Clear wrote this yeah. zillion selling book, Atomic Habits. I love and it. it and, and in the book, he he talks about uh, how many American soldiers got hooked on heroin uh, when they were in Vietnam. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's horrible things going on all around you. There's a war going on. Uh, you're in a place where you have easy access to drugs. You're away from your family. You're sad. You're scared. Uh, But he talks about even though about 20 percent of American soldiers got hooked on heroin uh, in Vietnam, when they returned home, a a small minority of them had problems going forward and the vast majority of them kicked it versus Hmm. the average person who goes to rehab. The recidivism rate among people who go to rehab is, you know, approaching 90 percent because, you know, you're at your home in Atlanta, you're using you go to rehab, you come back, you're around your same friends, you, you know, all these places you're familiar with, the same places where you just to score drugs, like it's all there. The social context is similar. So is there sort of a social or an environmental um, reality to addiction? Yes, absolutely. So um, all of these things matter. You know, all of these things matter. And, you know, in in some cases, in the case of alcohol, we live in a society and where alcohol is very much a part of how how many of us socialize. And so it it really is all things. It's it's biology, it's psychology and it's and it's environment sociology. So let me go back to to um, how, how do people reach you? What's the best way for people to get in contact with you? You know, I, I'm fairly unique in the situation that you know, I'm, I'm still a still an advisor. I have all my licenses. I still practice. You know, we have a, a fairly good sized wealth management firm here. Yet, um, I spend most of my time right now building up this Living Undeterred project where I'm talking mm-hmm. to people about the psychology behind the choices, the choices that they make, and that there's two roads with literally every choice. There's the better road, which is i.e. the good decision, and there's the bitter road. That's the road mm-hmm. that you make that leads to to um, to the abyss. I call it. You know, mm-hmm. um, and there's a lot of uh, metaphors, analogies, you know, parallels to the financial services industry, people making poor choices with money. You, you can be addicted to money. I'm sure it triggers dopamine and serotonin. Doesn't, doesn't money right. do the same thing? hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. So I mean, how, how do people reach you again, Daniel? Yeah. Uh, so I'm on LinkedIn, Daniel Crosby, PhD. I'm on Twitter at Daniel Crosby, uh, or you can tune into my podcast, uh, which is called standard deviations, where we talk about, all things money and psychology. And I would say that for this type of book is very well written for the average investor. 
Mm. And I, I think you had that in mind. It wasn't geared towards, I know some of the books I've read from some of the other people that do what you do, they're geared towards the financial advisor. Yeah. Th th this, this is, I read this with two hats on from a yeah. financial advisor perspective and from the average consumer. So I would, I'll have a link to your books on my site and I would strongly, strongly suggest that if you want to sleep a little bit better, you want some clarity <laughs> in how these markets work. Um, you want to learn maybe to get out of the way of yourself. Uh, and like my grandma said, plant the seed, let it grow, reap the fruit later, you know, yeah. um, your books, and I say books, uh, plural, uh, are all great reads for the average investor. So with that, I want to thank you very much for being on the Living on the Turd podcast. And uh, I appreciate our friendship. I know you and I have now got two years of kind of working together and um, I admire what you do immensely. Uh, any last words you want to throw out there to the average client or friend of mine that is struggling with the markets and what sage uh, advice or wisdom would you give to someone right now before we leave? Well, I would give them I would give them uh, advice that I think you embody, uh, which is to focus on putting first things first. Right. You have uh, sidelined your career in a real respect to focus on sort of bringing the world your truth in a real respect and, and helping share these sort of influences that impact your lives so you can better other people's lives. I think if you do what Jeff does, right, which is get busy about the work of doing things that really matter, take your eyes off the screen, take your eyes off sort of the, the daily ups and downs of your portfolio and get focused on living in a way that that provides you a legacy. I think everything else falls in place if you listen to grandma's uh, good advice. Yeah, follow your passions, I think is a nice. I, I have a phrase I like to say, it's, Purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. So hmm. hey, with that, my friend, um, have a great day and uh, really, really appreciate you taking the time and um, we'll talk soon. My pleasure, Jeff. Thanks. Thanks.